Acts chapter 16, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We remember from last week that the Apostle Paul and Silas uh, headed out on what is known as Paul's second missionary journey in order to visit uh, the churches that had been established on his first missionary journey in order to strengthen them and encourage them. Uh, Those churches had been established in the midst of uh, great persecution and hostility toward them, and he wanted to make sure that they're doing all right. Uh, As they began early in the journey, Uh, Timothy becomes a part of their uh, three-person traveling of of the missionary journey in order to take care of the physical needs of associated and to be a help in any way that he could of the Apostle Paul and also of of Silas. Their plan again was to go to the churches that they had originally, uh, Paul had originally established in his first missionary journey. That was the plan. And as they get partway through this uh, going to the churches and they come to Perga, as we're told there in verse 6, and then they go through the region of Galatia, accomplishing their plan, accomplishing what they felt God wanted them to do and what was their understanding of God's will as they headed out in the second missionary journey, all of a sudden, God begins to hinder them now in uh, moving forward in their missionary journey. He wants them to do something different than what they have planned. And uh, planning is wonderful. Nothing wrong with it. We plan for things in our lives. We do it as the best that we can hear the Lord. And all of that is fine as long as we allow God to change those plans. Some of us are professional planners. We're very organized people. We like to have all these ducks in a row. And uh, we like to know what God's will is. Uh, entirely before we take a step of faith. And a lot of times it just doesn't operate that way. And, uh, and so God changes the plan. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They make their way to the westernmost tip of what is modern-day Turkey, to the city of Troas, where the Apostle Paul receives a vision of a man of Macedonia, Greece, Europe, And the man of Macedonia in the vision cries out to Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul and the rest of those that were traveling with him recognize this to be a vision from the Lord and that they were now to leave the area of Galatia and go into, bring the gospel formally uh, into, for the first time, uh, the area that we know as Europe, into Greece. And so uh, that sets the stage, as we saw a bit last week, for where we are now. And so he uh, heads then immediately upon uh, verse 10, uh, at now after we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel uh, to them. And therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to uh, Samothrace, which is an island, uh, and the next day they came to Neapolis. And so it's about a 153-mile journey uh, 
by boat, the winds were favorable. They're able to make it uh, all, uh, in uh, just uh, two days with a single stop on the, the island of Samothrace. And from there, then, they made the short distance uh, in Greece to the city of Philippi. city of Philippi was a foremost city in that part of Macedonia. It was a colony that is a Roman colony, and we were staying in that city for some day. A Roman colony, there, there weren't a lot of them, but there were, uh, uh, there were enough of them to, well, Roman colonies were established by the city, the, the government of Rome, the Roman Empire, strategically throughout the empire in order to kind of have that city be a little piece of Rome far away from Rome in case they were attacked, like every, even though they were a great power, you always set up your defenses to slow down an enemy that would attempt to invade. And so they would set up these colonies, these uh, uh, Roman colony cities, and then they would um, uh, uh, kind of cause uh, retired Roman soldiers after they got out of the military to then locate formally into these colonies by giving them perks in those cities, no taxes, lots of kind of breaks that were given to them so that there would be this volunteer military force if necessary in a Roman colony. So a Roman colony was, uh, was more than the rest of the Roman Empire outside of Rome, was uh, under, very much under the government of Rome. It was very much uh, uh, with a Roman way of seeing things, Roman culture. It was as much, as close you could get to Rome and experiencing Roman culture uh, next to being in, in Rome itself. And of course, uh, a, a Roman colony would be a very pro-Roman uh, city. It would be very proud uh, of being a colony uh, city. And so there would be the adopting of uh, all of the Roman dress, all of the Roman customs. And then if anybody came in and did something quite different from that, they would be readily noticed in a Roman uh, colony. And so uh, this is what Paul walks into in the city of Philippi. And what follows now in the remainder of this really uh, one of the most treasured chapters in the Bible, uh, chapter 16 here, is a, is a salvation trilogy. There's three salvation stories that make up the rest of the chapter. And for those of us who are saved, which is virtually all of us, I assume, uh, tonight, uh, all of us have uh, not only are thankful for our own salvation, but we love to hear the story of somebody else's salvation, how God did that. We rejoice in the salvation of, of uh, anyone. And so uh, it is a, it's a beautiful uh, section of Scripture. So they come to Philippi. They stay there for some days. And uh, so they kind of get there, and um, they don't have any clarity on how to proceed. They know God has sent them uh, to Macedonia and into Philippi, but what does he want us to do? So they're waiting there and, and occupying and until God does whatever God alone can do that makes it clear, okay, this is what he's up to and let's get in line with that. And so uh, they don't quite know what that is and the Sabbath day comes and so they went out of the city uh, to the riverside 
where prayer was customarily made. So uh, they go out to uh, this riverside that is some distance outside of the city of Philippi. But for the Jews uh, in the ancient world, um, if there weren't, uh, there weren't enough Jews in order to establish a synagogue, then what the Jews would do is find uh, the closest body of running water. Running water was living water, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, of life. And, uh, and then they would meet there informally. In order to, uh, uh, in order to establish a, a Jewish synagogue, even to this day, it required that there be 10 males, 10 married males who had, where had started a family. They would marry young in those days. And, uh, uh, and those 10 males, if you had them, then you could start a synagogue. So here's this prominent city by the name of Philippi, and there are not uh, 10 Jewish males that meet this criteria in the entire city. And so uh, those that were God-fears, those that were followers of Judaism, uh, then would make their way to this river as a custom apparently, and uh, they would uh, spend the time in prayer. And so Paul goes out there with Silas and Timothy and uh, Luke. You notice the plural pronoun, we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So clearly uh, here as we see the account unfold, uh, Paul sits down. That's the seat of the rabbi, the seat of the teacher in the Jewish religion. And, uh, and so he begins to teach, and very clearly he preaches the gospel to them, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, uh, confirmed by the scriptures, and that salvation is not through the keeping of the law of Moses or circumcision or uh, the keeping of Sabbath or these different kinds of things, but salvation comes solely on the basis of putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our our sins. And so they spoke these things to the women uh, who met there. Now there was a certain woman named Lydia, and uh, she heard uh, Paul speaking, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. So she is uh, doubtless very, very wealthy. Uh, She is a businesswoman, and uh, she is a very successful businesswoman, if we can uh, come to any conclusions about the size of her house, where it's able to house her family, herself, her servants, and then to be able to invite into separate quarters uh, the Apostle Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy as well. Uh, To be a seller of purple in those days, um, the purple dye came from a a shell that was known as a Murex shell. And it contained, uh, each shell contained a single drop of purple dye. And so they would just harvest these things. The Roman Empire did it as a means of making money uh, because it was so rare. And imagine just taking, I don't know what you do with oysters to make them edible. Well, I know you make them seem like they're anything other than an oyster. Uh, so you can get them down. Don't chew them too many times, apparently, going down. I know all of this from second-hand knowledge. Uh, they won't be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, probably not kosher, selfish, shellfish, and all of that. And, but um, imagine taking all of the labor involved in just getting one drop 
to get a purple dye. So if you saw anybody in the, in the ancient world wearing purple, it meant that they were uh, off the graph, uh, wealthy. I don't know what they would do, Curtis, with your shirt or a paisley shirt or a you know, whatever today to see. And that's why in the ancient world, it was very much bland colors. It would be, uh, you know, earth tones and that kind of thing from the natural fabrics. For anybody to wear any kind of a color was a remarkable thing and a, a demonstration of wealth. And so she was in this, uh, this particular trade and uh, she was from the city of Thyatira. That's where her hometown was, but now residing uh, in Philippi. And, uh, and so she worshiped the God there at that riverside. She is uh, probably uh, most likely a Gentile. So she is what is considered a, um, a, a God-fearer, uh, a Gentile who respected uh, the holiness and the beauty of the God uh, of Israel, the God of the Bible, in comparison to these uh, moody, sometimes bloodthirsty uh, Roman and Greek gods. And certainly one of the things that made uh, the God of the Bible very attractive, especially to women, was the, was the uh, way that God uh, viewed women, esteemed women, elevated uh, uh, women in his, uh, in his, uh, in his view uh, of them. And so she is a God-fear. She's worshiping the God of the Jews. And you notice the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken uh, by Paul. Clearly, he speaks the gospel to her. We see a, a wonderful uh, combination of the uh, divine part and the human part in anybody's uh, salvation. So often, uh, people, Christians, feel like it's got to be all one or all the other. But salvation involves uh, two parties. It involves God uh, uh, calling us and opening up our hearts uh, to Him to receive the gospel as we see there. Uh, and then it requires us heeding uh, that uh, opened heart and the message that He has brought our way. So the, the uh, divine part and then the human responsibility all happily married. Uh, in verse 14. Isn't it wonderful to solve age-old problems in a single verse uh, tonight? Uh, and, and when she and her household uh, were baptized, so clearly they're born again, or there's no way Paul would baptize them, uh, so her household believed as well, she then begged uh, the, the disciples saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. Let me extend hospitality to you. And so she uh, persuaded us. So we see here um, a, a part of what her, made her very, very successful in her uh, business. And uh, she uh, had a great gift for sales. I mean, you look at how she phrases this, this thing here uh, in terms of extending the hospitality. She also understands the importance of hospitality, especially in the ancient world. And she says to them, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Now, how do you say no to that? 
I mean, she's a brand new Christian and she's uh, talking like this and, and just a beautiful revelation of her heart. Come to my house and stay. And, and so with these words and with that heart, uh, she persuaded uh, us. And so, uh, and with that, then we move into the second salvation story of the demon-possessed slave girl in verse 16. Now it happened, this is some days uh, uh, separate from the event of Lydia's salvation in her household. It happened that as we went to prayer somewhere there um, in the city of Philippi, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us. And so she is uh, uh, demon-possessed, severely demon-possessed. And and out of her uh, spirit of divination, uh, she brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And so the demonic realm is very real. Uh, there is a supernatural about it. Uh, it is uh, definitely not as great as, as uh, the kingdom of God and God's side of things, but it is real. And so um, people, uh, she is demon-possessed. She is not only possessed by the devil, but she is possessed or owned by uh, not one, but several men who are using this kind of supernatural ability that she has by virtue of being demon-possessed to tell people their fortunes or their future or who they should marry or who, what they should do in this business kind of thing. And apparently very effectively. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, so much so that they became very, very wealthy as a result of, of the demand for her. And so as Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are uh, making their way and serving there in the city of Philippi, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, that, <laughs> that is a... That's as true a statement as you could ever want to get from a missionary or an evangelist. I mean, that's quite an endorsement uh, that this, this demon-possessed girl uh, gives to the ministry of Paul and of uh, the disciples. They're the servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to us the way of salvation. She did this for many days. But Paul became uh, greatly annoyed or disturbed by it. And at that point, he turned and he said, uh, not to her, but to the spirit, uh, the demonic spirit that indwelt her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And that demonic spirit came out of her uh, that uh, very hour. You think about, again, you put yourself in the the shoes of this uh, woman uh, to be possessed by a uh, a demon. And to think about it, to be indwelt by a fallen angel. Have a fallen angel residing inside of you, controlling uh, you. Uh, angels, fallen or otherwise, are greater than us in our own strength. And uh, we see the evil that goes on all around the world under the influence of this, uh, this whole demonic hierarchy under the devil and the source of the evil in the world. And so she has, she's not just dealing as we do with God inside of us and evil from, uh, on the outside. Uh, she's got the ultimate evil living inside of her. Uh, 
in the person of a, a fallen angel. And that's the daily portion that she wakes up to every morning and, and goes to sleep every night with that reality uh, in her uh, life. And, and she receives no sympathy at all from the devil related uh, to the misery of her condition. And then you have human beings come along and rather than look at her and say, we've got to do something to get some help for this, uh, this young girl. What a miserable existence uh, must be hers. No, they rub their hands together, their palms together, and say, I think we can say, make some money off of this. And so there's nobody in her orbit that has any interest in uh, uh, letting her go of her condition or to uh, help her uh, in, in any uh, way. And so here she is, she is uh, saying these things that are quite true about God, quite true about the gospel that Paul is, uh, is, is preaching. And, uh, and Paul recognized that the message of the girl, completely accurate, but that it would create confusion in the minds of the citizens of Philippi. Uh, because they would look and, and figure out, well, uh, the demon spirit that fills this girl uh, is a part of the same God and the same everything that uh, Paul and uh, Silas are declaring. So it would create a confusion about the, the one line you don't want to be confused about, and that is the line between light and darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom uh, of Satan. And so uh, Paul, uh, operating by the Holy Spirit, uh, he takes and, uh, and delivers this girl uh, of, of, her, uh, uh, of her demon. And so and he proclaims and commands that demon to come out of her in Jesus' wonderful name, and he came out that very hour. And you think about uh, that. Uh, they didn't call a rabbi, they didn't call an imam, uh, they called a Christian who was in relationship with the power of God and in relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's the same thing today if you want to cast a demon out of anyone in the world. They always call for someone connected with Christ, the one who is greater uh, than, than the demon. And so this demon is cast out of her. Imagine that. I was reading the, uh, this again this week, and, and you just think about uh, the hymn that we sing so often, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, uh, Lord of all. Well, everybody was thrilled, except when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, uh, there's no excitement. Oh, good, somebody finally came along. The, the torment of this girl every day. I, I was losing sleep and I couldn't eat and losing weight. My health was degrading and this is the most wonderful day. Somebody came and helped her. No, that's not the reaction that they had at all. All they thought about was their money. Uh, it's the, uh, uh, the, and that the profit uh, was, had been cut off the whole money kind of uh, flow of it, so much of it flowing toward them. And uh, they were so upset about it. Uh, they recognized Paul and Silas to be uh, the issue that brought their, uh, their, their money uh, thing to an end. And so they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So they grabbed them 
they bring them before the authorities in the city of Philippi, which means they would be bringing them before Roman officials, very Roman officials in the city of Philippi. And they brought them to the magistrates and they said, these men being Jews, anti-Semitism, it's as old as the beginning of mankind. God said of the Jews, I will bless them uh, who I will bless those who bless them. I will curse those who curse them. It is a fool's folly to take on the Jews at any time in human history. God still has work that he's going to do in and through those people into the end of the age and also into uh, the kingdom uh, age. And so here uh, you have this Gentile city, um, no, and, and foreign absolutely to Christianity. Judaism has hardly a foothold in it at all, and there's no uh, easier crowd to rile up. And uh, here they are Jews, foreigners, Jewish foreigners, and they exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful uh, for us being Romans uh, to receive uh, or to observe. And so that's the accusation uh, that, they, uh, that they made uh, against them, Jews teaching customs that aren't uh, 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 supposed to be taught for us being uh, Romans. That is not at all what's happened. That's not the accusation that troubles them. Paul had been ministering for a fair length of time at this point, teaching about God and, and doing so as a Jew and teaching uh, the customs and, and the truth about God. And, the, and they had never had a problem with it at all until they delivered the demon-possessed girl. This was all about money. But you can't come up before the magistrates and say, listen, we've been making a fortune off of this demon-possessed girl. And, uh, and the flow of money, I mean, you can't believe the money we were making off of her. And these people came in and they shut off the flow of money. Well, you're, that, that's not going to fly at all. And so they make it anti-Semitism. They make it anti-religion. And then they appeal to nationalism within a very nationalistic group there. Uh, in, in, uh, in Philippi. And so it's the same thing always. Well, the Bible says it's a, it's a fool who answers a matter before he hears both sides of the story. And uh, so if you're ever out in the fellowship hall and you see uh, somebody talking with another person and the person is telling them everything and they're standing like this, you might know what they're uh, doing. They're covering one ear for the other side of the story. And if we don't put our hand up there, it's good to do it in our own minds. And very little in life appears uh, to be uh, how it is presented to us. We tend to present ourselves in the most favorable uh, uh, light that we can. Sometimes in marriage counseling, you can have the husband and the wife in the same room. And you have trouble getting down to what is the truth of this situation and this relationship? And, and so here uh, they portray it entirely different from 
uh, what it was. And all, all anyone needed to do to just uh, blow out the smoke screen that they had uh, put up would, was to just simply ask a question and uh, exactly what customs are they teaching and practicing that are contrary to Roman rule. But the magistrate doesn't do that because he doesn't care, as we'll see uh, in, in a, a, a moment. And so uh, they, uh, the, the multitude gets riled up with the accusation and they rose up together against Paul and Silas and the magistrates then tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods. And so uh, they are not content merely to beat Paul and Silas with rods, but they don't even want uh, the thinness of linen cloth uh, between those rods and their skin. And they remove those rods from them. And this is uh, surely one of the three times that Paul references in his letter uh, to the church at Corinth concerning being uh, beaten with rods three times as he talked about his, his service uh, to the Lord. And when they had laid many stripes uh, on them, under Jewish law, if you beat someone, you whip someone, uh, you were restricted to 39 uh, stripes. And that was considered mercy not to go to the 49th, uh, the 40th, 40th stripe. Rome put no limitations at all uh, upon uh, how many uh, stripes they would lay upon a person with rod or with, uh, or with uh, whip. And so they laid, as we're told, many stripes on them. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them uh, securely. And having received such a charge, uh, the jailer put them into the inner prison, that is into the very dungeon of the prison, and then he fastened their feet uh, in the stocks. And so here is somebody, two men, Paul and Silas, they've come into the city, they have done what nobody else has apparently seen accomplished in that city. And that is here, are, here is someone who is able to cast a demon, a fallen angel, out of another human being. This guy is clearly connected with the supernatural. And, and so when he has them entrusted to him as a jailer uh, to, to secure them, he's not going to take any chances. He puts him in the very heart of the prison and, and then additionally, he puts their feet in stocks. Not going to take a chance at all. I mean, they can't even lie down in a cell and get any, uh, any kind of, of uh, rest at all. And so this is the condition that they're left in as, uh, as uh, then the focus moves then to the Philippian jailer and his salvation in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining and... Uh, uh, saying, I quit, and uh, uh, to heck with everybody in Philippi, I never want to see this city ever again. And uh, none of that went on. So, uh, uh, but uh, at midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying, and just communicating with God uh, at midnight, and singing hymns to God. Now, I don't know how many of us are uh, even awake at midnight, for the most part. Certainly not when it gets dark at five o'clock. Um, 
But uh, here they are. They're praying, singing hymns to God. And then marvel of marvels, the prisoners were uh, listening uh, to them there in the prison. And so they're praying, they're singing hymns to God. There's no moaning and complaining against Roman justice and how, and God, how come you could, you can cast a, a demon out of a girl and you can't keep us from being imprisoned and, and uh, you know, crying out against the unfairness of, uh, of life. And, but because they were praying and singing hymns to God in that condition, the prisoners were listening to them. If they had been thrown into prison at midnight and put in the stocks and begin to complain about what a victim they are and what injustices had been done to them and complaining against all of these kind of things, everybody in that prison would have said, oh, they're like every other prisoner who's ever come through. Let's get some sleep. But when these guys come in and they respond to the same treatment, though innocent, uh, it captures all of their attention. And, and nobody says, hey, we're trying to get some sleep around here. Isn't that something? You've got a bunch of hardened criminals in prison, the, the center of the prison. These are the worst of the prisoners. The center of the prison, these guys are praying and singing hymns to God at midnight, and nobody tells them to shut up. In fact, not only does nobody tell them to shut up, they're all listening to every word they pray and to every word that they sing. I mean, you imagine being in there. Here they are in that condition, all bloodied up, messed up, in chains, all of that. And then you hear the equivalent of, of uh, and the, the early church equivalent of amazing grace or how great thou art or whatever being sung. One great uh, 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 majestic, substantive uh, hymn about God uh, after, uh, uh, after the, uh, the other. And so uh, here is this, this praying, lifting up hymns uh, to God. I think that it was a, um, a, th- a thing certainly, well, of necessity for Paul and for Silas. There's the old saying, is it, um, if the outlook is bad, try the uplook. Well, the outlook was bad. And so let's try the uplook. And the uplook for us is prayer and worship music. It's very important in our Christian life, of course, to be ministered to by the Word of God and to be reading the Word of God on a daily basis and growing in our knowledge of the Word of God. It washes us, it feeds us, it, does, it sanctifies us. It does so many things. But also to always have a song in our hearts and to, be, to make sure that worship is a part of our prayer life too. Uh, toward the Lord in order to maintain perspective, especially in circumstances that can come into our life as unfairly, as, as unfair as these, these circumstances uh, are. And so this, uh, this uh, allows them to see what they're in the middle of with the, with the eternal uh, perspective. And so uh, here they're being listened to, uh, being heeded as always. We bring it up every so often in the book of Acts. Never are our lives uh, uh, so watched. Never are our words so listened to uh, by a lost world than when they see us in an air unfair condition 
uh, in a difficult trial and condition, and we still pray to God, and we still sing praises to God. Not merely just barely holding on to our faith or complaining about God, but that these things continue to mark our lives. And I think that for these soldiers, there's a curiosity about that. Um, They had uh, Zeus worshipers in prison all the time. Uh, They had all of the people that followed all of the Roman and the Greek gods in that prison at one time or another, and probably all of them were worshipers of those uh, same gods. And now here's a God that produces people like that. And so they're going to listen for their lives because they know they don't have that. And they want to know where it's found. And it's this beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, scene. And so they were being listened to. And then the Lord wants to add his amen to what it is that they're doing here. And suddenly there was a great uh, earthquake so that the foundation of the prisons uh, the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed and so here you have an earthquake that does no damage at all to the structure to the walls uh, but it, what it does and in indication of the supernaturalness of it and was that all of the doors uh, to the various cells uh, were then uh, loosed. And so uh, the earthquake occurs and this loosing occurs and then the keeper of the prison awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, as he, he well might, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. So as a, he's probably a retired Roman soldier who is now supplementing his uh, R- Roman soldier retirement by being the, the jailer in this prison. Uh, one of the responsibilities related to operating a prison like that was that if you ever lost a prisoner, then whatever the sentence was that was upon the prisoner that you lost, you had to incur uh, that Uh, uh, that particular sentence upon yourself. And when you have uh, all of these men who are in uh, the dungeon of of the the prison, no doubt murderers among them, he realizes, I'm going to go ahead and take my own life and uh, spare uh, myself uh, the humiliation of being executed uh, by Rome and and save them uh, the trouble. And he's about to do that. And Paul then called out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, we're all here. You haven't lost a prisoner at all. And then the jailer, he called for a light, which tells us that Paul is and Silas, not only in the heart of that prison, um, not only having been heavily beaten by rods and their feet in stocks, but when the jailer then left that, that dungeon, that inner part of the prison, absolutely black dark, completely dark environment, that all of this beautiful praise and worship is being uh, uh, lifted up. Because here the man then uh, called for a light to be brought into that environment. And, uh, and then he ran in and he fell down trembling uh, before uh, Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, 
what must I do to be saved? Well, apparently, he'd been listening too. And, uh, and this is the question that he has uh, uh, for them. No other question. The most important thing to him is you, you're the ones that know. You have the God that knows. What must I do to be saved? And so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your own, own household. In other words, their, his own household could do the same thing and be uh, saved. And so believing on the Lord is not just having kind of a mental uh, believing about the Lord. Uh, it's not merely believing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing that He died upon the cross and His death upon the cross is the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins and, and all of uh, the theology of that and knowing all of that. Uh, believing on the Lord is to, at a moment in time in my life, trust in Him. It's an act of my will. It's more than just believing something in my mind. Now, as an act of my will, I put my trust for the forgiveness of my sins on Him and on what He has done for me in His death, burial, and His resurrection. And so Paul communicates them this to the, him, that this invitation's not solely to him, but it's an invitation of God to his entire household as well. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And then he, the jailer, took them and uh, the same hour uh, of night, and they then washed the wounds from their beating, and immediately he and all of his family were uh, baptized. Now that's, uh, uh, that's quite a thing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know where they got to pool the water, uh, and, but what a great attitude towards obeying the Lord here as quick as he could. He's not even going to let the sunrise occur before they're baptized here, he and his family. And now when he had brought them then into his house, so he brings them out of the dungeon area, the inner part of the prison, brings them into their home, which is apparently kind of an apartment there that's a part uh, of the prison, and uh, set food before them. And then he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his uh, household. And so this beautiful, beautiful story and, and account concerning the salvation of um, this uh, Philippian uh, jailer. And you think about the Apostle Paul and, and um, Silas. And they, here, you say, what's behind... Um, What's behind an, an ability to refrain from complaining about circumstances that dire, introduced into their life that unfairly? And I think that part of it is the confidence that they had and that we need to have in the providence of God. In, in our lives, that he rules over all and he overrules all for his purposes in our lives. When they sat in those stocks and, uh, and having been beaten, now in the dark, praying and singing praises to God, um, despite what the outward circumstances were, 
They knew they were in the will of God. They knew God had sent them to Philippi. They knew that they were there to preach the gospel. And they knew God cast that demon out of that girl. So here is this whole incredible peace and boldness and confidence that is a part of our life that we need so desperately in these dire circumstances we can find ourselves in when we can look in the midst of those circumstances and say, this is miserable, this is hard, but I know I'm right in the middle of the will of God. And as hard as being in the middle of God's will is right now, there's no place that I would rather, uh, rather be than that. And they saw their circumstances in the light of that, and they saw that God, uh, that submission to God, God, you can use my life any way that you want to. Do you think the Apostle Paul didn't live uh, every day in his mind understanding about himself. God, you can spend my life any way that you want to. I would have thrown it away a thousand different ways before now. And what an honor it is to be able to spend my life in this way. And the second thing that uh, was such a blessing to them was uh, uh, in enduring all of this was... Uh, the salvation of, of that, that girl, that demon cast out uh, of her. And for them to love uh, the individual soul of that one woman in that condition, they could look at it and say, if this is what it took, for her to be saved, we're fine with that. The value of a human soul in, uh, in Paul and in, in Silas. Well, this raises a question in, in terms of the, the demon-possessed girl and uh, because uh, Luke here does not explicitly say that she was demon-possessed, delivered, and then became a Christian. But I agree with so many others that have looked at the passage, and, and uh, I think to myself, uh, here you have this trilogy of salvation, and uh, three stories of salvation, and so uh, this, this has to be what happened to her. I mean, the Lord wouldn't leave her in no man's land. I mean, Jesus knew uh, better than anyone that if the demon is cast out and that person, that demon isn't replaced with the Holy Spirit in a person's life, then seven demons greater than the first demon will come back in as his friends. And then there'll really be a problem. And, and so this beautiful, beautiful uh, valuing of souls. You think about how many missionaries around uh, the world and how many people live in the United States in different places that they, they live in and all, and all Christians living in the different environments that God puts us to live in and to be able to say, I won't complain against this. I won't complain against this because uh, of the, the uh, God is using me in a way that he knows is right, and I so value the souls around me that if any of them get saved, it's worth any discomfort uh, that, that I might go through, even discomfort on, 
on this, this level. And so then when the sun came up uh, that morning, and it was day, the magistrates, the judge who ordered them to be beaten and, and sent uh, and put in the deepest part of the prison, sent the officers saying, uh, let those men uh, go. And so the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, now therefore depart and go in peace. So they're very much at friends and and saying, you're free to go, and free to go in peace. There's not going to be any more uh, uh, legal action against you here. And Paul said to them, uh, they have beaten us openly. Out, out, in the, out in the open in the city of Philippi, they've beaten both Silas and I. And, and they have beaten us as uncondemned Romans, and they've thrown us into prison. Not every person that lived under the, in the Roman Empire was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were a very small minority within the Roman Empire. The overwhelming majority were non-Roman citizens. They were foreigners. Uh, they were immigrants. Uh, they were slaves. And one of the privileges of Roman citizenship was that you could never, ever be uh, uh, you were always entitled to a thorough trial uh, before a Roman court to establish your guilt and that there would always be a day between uh, the, the time in, in which the charge is brought and the trial would occur so that mo emotions could come down. You see it, you see it in court systems all around the world where there is the time where the crime occurs and then some period of time is allowed uh, to, to pass in, in order for emotions to die down and then now deal with this according to the facts. This magistrates, they ignored all of that and they ignored th their rights as a Roman uh, citizen and it, it could be their job if Paul reported that to the officials of Rome having been treated this way as a Roman citizen. So he exerts his Roman citizenship and says, I am a Roman citizen. I've been treated contrary to how uh, the Roman law says a Roman citizen is to be uh, treated by being thrown into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? They have beaten us as representatives of Jesus Christ as carriers of this message of the gospel, they've made us look like criminals before the entire population, and now they want us to slink out of town, and that will be the reputation of Christians in the city of Philippi. I'm not going to allow that to happen. And he didn't. And so he said, no, indeed. Let them come themselves publicly and get us out. And the officers told these things to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And then they came and they pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. And so Paul and Barnabas went out of the prison. They entered into the house of Lydia. So they're gonna leave on, on their, uh, at their own time and in their own ways. And when they had seen the brethren, they then encouraged the brethren that they were leaving behind now, and then they uh, departed. So Paul here is it's not a, 
He's not some, you know, reckless guy lashing out in his flesh. Um, he is letting, he's going to leave this city. He knows he's going to leave this city. And he's going to leave it with a, a church established. It's going to be one of the most supportive and loving churches of all of the churches toward the Apostle Paul that he established. He cares about these people. He's been involved in their very salvation. Three stories right here for us. And so he wants the Roman officials in the city to know that the next time uh, a bunch of hoodlums come and bring a charge against Jews or against Christians before this courtroom that you slow down and you meet out Roman justice from, from this scene. You're not to treat Christians in this way. And he does it out of a concern for the body of Christ and though he, those he's leaving uh, behind. And he made his point. And so Paul, here's a, a classic example of where he exercises his Roman citizenship as an apostle. And there's nothing wrong uh, with it all as a Christian exercising every single right we have as a citizen of the United States of America to be an influence for God and for good. And every election and every influence that we can be within a community, on a committees or whatever, uh, that kind of thing might be. There's a whole group of Christians that exist that look at engaging uh, in, uh, in politics, so to speak, or engaging in the world in this way is somehow a carnal activity or somehow below us as Christians. Paul exercised his rights as a Roman citizen. Jesus said that we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And salt and light, are uh, those are substances that are, are uh, influential against corruption and against darkness. And so he told us that we were uh, to have our salt, have some saltiness to it, and for uh, our, our light to be not hidden, but to, for it to be, to be bright. And when we use that in the political process, for instance, in running for office or in, in voting, it can be a deeply spiritual thing that we are doing. Now, there's all kinds of things on a ballot, uh, all of these elections when they come and go, that have nothing to do with anything spiritual or moral at all. You vote however you want, but on those things, it's a unique chance to be influential for, for God and the things of God in, in the culture, and he wasn't afraid at all to exercise those, uh, those rights. So tonight, we'll stop there and enjoy uh, the Lord's Supper under the influence of these salvation stories. So you have Lydia, successful, very successful, of a, a well-respected woman, a moral woman uh, uh, in, in the city of, uh, of Philippi, very responsible human being. She's a seeking person after, uh, a, after God. And, uh, and so, uh, but none of that is enough to enter into the kingdom of God. I've got to be born again. So she teaches us from the old saying that there are none who are so good that they don't need to be saved. And so she ends up being saved. And maybe some of you 
came to know the Lord, some of us here today, out of a very moral, successful background, but all of these accomplishments and recognition still hadn't satisfied uh, what we knew. There, there, this is not the meaning and purpose of life. What is it? And then uh, God comes into our life and, and, uh, and the light turns on. You have the demon-possessed girl. I mean, just absolutely hopeless, humanly speaking. And, uh, and she uh, brings forth that second half of that saying, uh, there's no one who is so good they don't need to be saved and none so bad that they can't be saved. What capacity, humanly speaking, do you think she had to break through on that day and end up saved? Zero. God came in and just broke through, I don't know how many layers of demonic stronghold on her life and just brought her out of it. And there's a whole world of people. And I, one of the things that I hate about the difference between my generation, the good generation in American history, just kidding, but my generation and the younger generations now, and it breaks my heart, is things that we never saw and never learned about until we were 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. And now they're being exposed at eight and nine and 10 and 11. And they can be a walking demonic stronghold it's such a young age. And the privilege that we have to be able to, no matter how, what condition a person is in, to be able to go up to them and express there is hope in Jesus Christ. He is greater than even everything you have ever experienced in life and, and greater than all of the chains that you and others have put upon yourself. And... and and some of us perhaps saved out of that background. And then the Philippian jailers, just the big uh, anonymous. He just a cog in the machine of the Roman Empire. He's like most of the people in the world. He's got a good job, got a government job. He's responsible in keeping it, and he just kind of does it and raises his family and just tries to get by. But he's not seeking God. Uh, he's not asking any big questions about life and the meaning of life. He's just this guy that is going through life and probably wouldn't believe that God has any interest in him at all. And then God sets up a series of circumstances here involving an apostle and his assistant to be in prison so that he could then hear the gospel. And he realizes he's not an anonymous cog in this big machine of the world but that he's loved by God. And there's a meaning and a purpose in life beyond the Roman Empire or getting through one more day or raising a family. And it's found in a relationship with God. And somebody shares that with him sometime in his life and then he's born again. And that's the testimony of many people as well. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, just to think about our own testimony and whether it was one of these three circumstances or some hybrid of, uh, of, of them, the wonderful miracle that has occurred in our life to be born again.
and to just think about the price that was paid in order for us to enjoy salvation, to have the forgiveness of sins, to know that one day, absolutely no, one day we will be in heaven to be set free, to live a life with the kind of meaning and purpose we're able to live our life with an eternal meaning, so much to be thankful for and to give him thanks and to praise him for tonight. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, the gentleman will pass the bread, hold the bread, and then we'll partake together, uh, pray together, partake together, and then we'll do the same with the cup. And so if the men will come forward and the worship team, let's praise the Lord and uh, thank God, this wonderful God who loved our soul long before uh, we ever did.